Section 29 of the Early Hanoverians by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 3. Religion and Letters. Chapter 1. Wesley and Butler. The reign of George II ends in a blaze of military glory. But peace hath her victories no less renowned than war, and to those who know how rightly to appraise events, the new reformation which took place during the reign may seem of more importance than even the great victories of the Seven Years' War. Religion in England was in a very languid state through the reign of George I, and during the first decade of George II. Many clergymen, no doubt, in country villages were zealously and quietly doing their work, just as a little earlier there is to be noticed a religious tone in many papers of the widely read spectator. But it is quite fair to say that religion had not a vital hold upon any class of the people. The force of Puritanism was spent, a force which had lasted long after it was conquered at the Restoration. On the other hand, the waves of church influence which had passed over England since the Restoration may be described as rather political than religious. Here is some evidence upon the lack of religion. The Archbishop of Canterbury would not be anxious to take a gloomy view, and in 1738, the very year in which Wesley's itinerant preaching began, he said in an official charge, an open and professed disregard to religion is become, through a variety of unhappy causes, a distinguishing character of the present age. This evil has grown to a great height in the metropolis of the nation, is daily spread through every part of it, and bad in itself as this can be, must of necessity bring all others after it. Indeed, it hath already brought in such dissoluteness and contempt of principle in the highest part of the world, and such profligate intemperance and fearlessness of committing crimes in the lower, as must, if this torrent of impiety stop not, become absolutely fatal. And God knows, far from stopping, it receives from the ill design of some persons and the inconsiderateness of others a continual increase. Christianity is now ridiculed and railed at with very little reserve, and the teachers of it without any at all. In the advertisement to the Analogy, published 1736, Butler writes, It is come, I know not how, to be taken for granted by many persons, that Christianity is not so much as a subject of inquiry, but that it is now at length discovered to be fictitious. At the lowest ebb of true religion came the new forces destined to turn the tide, the enthusiasm of Methodism in the preaching of the Wesleys and Whitefield, to influence the middle and lower orders, and the arguments of Butler to convince the educated. The new religious movement is chiefly connected with the name of John Wesley, the son of a Lincolnshire clergyman. When Wesley was only six years old, his father's parsonage was burnt, and the little boy was with difficulty saved. As he was lifted out of a window, the roof of the room in which he had been fell with a crash. This wonderful preservation impressed him even in boyhood with the belief that he was designed to be an instrument in some great work. From the age of ten to seventeen, young Wesley was educated at the Charterhouse in London, 
the school which Addison had left some quarter of a century earlier. At seventeen, Wesley went up to Christ Church, Oxford, and on the completion of his university course, he took holy orders and was elected a fellow of Lincoln, at which college his place of birth gave him a preferential claim. When at Oxford, John Wesley and his brother Charles and a few other friends led very strict and religious lives. They rose at four o'clock every morning, and entirely abstaining from amusement, planned out every hour of the day for some studious, pious, or beneficent use. From this strictness of routine they acquired the name of Methodists, a name given in mockery, but retained as a name of honor in widely scattered parts of the world. After working for some few years as a clergyman in England, John Wesley was anxious for a wider scope for his energies. He crossed the seas to Georgia, a colony that had then not very long been founded. It was not, however, to the colonists that Wesley wished to preach. In his missionary zeal, he was determined to carry the gospel to the Indians. But only for two years did Wesley remain in Georgia. On his return to England, the published accounts of his mission were attacked by two bishops with whom Wesley entered into controversy and was thought to win the victory. Shortly after his return to England, Wesley paid a visit to Count Zinzendorf, the celebrated founder of the Moravian Brotherhood at Herrenhut, the village which he had recently established in Saxony. The name means the Lord's protection. The Moravians aimed at a simpler form of Christian doctrine as well as a purer and stricter Christian life. The influence of this visit upon Wesley was soon visible, for from this time dates the regular organization of the Methodists. They too may be said to have aimed at simpler doctrine and stricter life. A life the practice of which is more in accordance with the tenets of religion is naturally liable to the same charge that is often brought against Puritanism, namely hypocrisy. But the Puritans were for a while the dominant power, and under such circumstances there is more reason to be hypocritical. Seldom could anyone gain by becoming a Methodist, except the ridicule of the world. Yet under the preaching of the Wesleys, the number of the Methodists rapidly increased. At first, Wesley desired to establish a separate society within the limits of the Church of England, and it is still a matter of doubt whether he himself ever left that church. But it was very soon found impossible to prevent the secession, which has created the separate sect of Methodists. Charles Wesley was the poet of the movement, a man of much sweeter and gentler character than his brother. Had John been as Charles Wesley, there would have been no widespread movement at all. Yet Charles helped with his hymns as the elder brother with his sermons, his writing, and his power of organization. Good hymns have a power of piercing beyond texts, and the hymns of Charles Wesley are still used by many who would scorn in any way to be classed with the Methodists. If it be true that the making of a people's songs is more important than the making of their laws, the work of Charles Wesley must be remembered in estimating that of his brother. George Whitefield was a more powerful preacher than either of the Wesleys and had a great influence in the first establishment of Methodism. He was born at the Bell Inn in Gloucester and was educated at the grammar school in that city. 
His mother, however, was poor, and he was taken from school at the age of fifteen to help in the service of the inn. At eighteen, however, Whitefield went as a servitor to Pembroke College, Oxford, and whilst at Oxford fell under the influence of John Wesley, then a fellow of Lincoln. Whitefield's piety and genuine religion induced the Bishop of Gloucester to ordain him before the usual age, and shortly afterwards Whitefield joined the Wesleys in the missionary expedition to Georgia. His first stay was for a very short time. Having seen the needs, Whitefield returned to England to raise money for the mission. This was the beginning of his famous preaching. The clergy, being angry at the rise of Methodism, refused their pulpits, and Whitefield took to preaching in the open air. His first audience consisted of the colliers in the neighborhood of Bristol, and it is said that as many as 20,000 soon gathered round him. He remarked himself that the first discovery of their being affected was by seeing the white gutters made by their tears, which plentifully fell down their black cheeks. Whitefield paid no less than seven visits to Georgia, in those days a formidable voyage, and was always indefatigable as an itinerant preacher. His labors indeed were incessant. It was stated by one who knew him well that he generally preached for forty hours every week and sometimes for sixty. He would not rest when friends suggested, saying that he would rather wear out than rust out. The result was that he died before he was fifty-six. Differences had arisen between Wesley and Whitefield, which led to a division afterwards between their followers. Those who followed Whitefield were known properly as Calvinistic Methodists. Eloquence like Whitefield's, as that of many eminent debaters in Parliament, cannot be preserved for posterity. There is nothing remarkable in all his printed sermons nor in his writings. The whole effect must have lain in voice and manner, in earnestness and enthusiasm. But the testimony to the influence of his sermons cannot be doubted. One Whitsuntide he entered into a competition with the showman of Moorfields, all day from six in the morning until dark he was preaching, singing, or praying, and afterwards he received no less than one thousand letters from persons testifying to their conversion. But the strongest testimony is that of Benjamin Franklin, the well-known American writer and thinker. Not a man likely easily to yield to impulse. Franklin went to hear Whitefield preach for an object as to which he had been consulted, and from which he had tried to dissuade Whitefield. Franklin noted that he had in his pocket copper and silver and gold, and continues, As he proceeded I began to soften, and concluded to give the copper. Another stroke of his oratory made me ashamed of that, and determined me to give the silver. And he finished so admirably that I emptied my pocket wholly into the collector's dish, gold and all. The period of history contained in this little volume witnessed the publication of several books, such as Robinson Crusoe and Gulliver's Travels, which will always hold a place in literature. But probably the greatest and the most useful of all books then published is Butler's Analogy, a work of potent influence in stemming the tide of irreligion. Joseph Butler was born at the little town of Wantage on the Berkshire Downs, his father had been a linen draper, but had retired from business before the birth of this his youngest child. 
the father being a presbyterian wished his son to be trained as a presbyterian minister and sent him to a dissenting school at gloucester where curiously enough he had the future archbishop of canterbury as a schoolfellow even when a schoolboy young butler displayed a great talent as a reasoner and at length he persuaded his father to permit him to enter at oriel college oxford and to take holy orders in the english church he was only twenty-six when he was appointed preacher at the rolls chapel fifteen sermons out of those that he there preached have been published and are still not only read but studied as a textbook at universities butler was presented to the valuable living of stanhope in the county of durham and in the seclusion of this quiet country rectory he wrote the analogy queen caroline was a great admirer of butler's sermons she is reported once to have asked whether he was dead and to have received the reply no but he is buried the queen who delighted in theological and philosophical controversy and who had great influence in the bestowal of church patronage determined to unearth him in the year before her death butler was appointed clerk of the closet and on her deathbed she recommended him to her husband's care he was shortly afterwards appointed bishop of bristol as this see was very poorly paid he was also made dean of st paul's and after a dozen years he was translated to durham against which the same complaint could not be made the princely revenues of the see were during the two years that he filled it lavishly spent by bishop butler in public and in private charity whilst he himself retained the utmost simplicity of life he died at bath in seventeen fifty two aged sixty and was buried in bristol cathedral the story runs that butler had once declined the primacy with the reply that it was too late for him to try to support a falling church if true this is a curious instance of the way in which despondent men will prophesy ill but probably no man did so much as bishop butler to support the cause of religion and prevent it from falling the full title of his great book is the analogy of religion natural and revealed to the constitution and course of nature it marks a difference between the opposition to religion in the first half of the last century and in later times that butler is throughout not arguing against atheists those who deny the existence of a god but against deists those who holding this doctrine yet deny the truth of christianity my design is to apply the method of analogy to religion in general both natural and revealed taking for proved that there is an intelligent author of nature and natural governor of the world to those who acknowledge this postulate bishop butler proceeds to prove that there are no more and no harder difficulties in the christian scheme than can be found in theism the book is written in a singularly dignified style very far superior to the ordinary works of controversy end of section twenty nine